Okay, so we are continuing our study in the book of Zechariah. Just an incredible book. You know, we've been going through this journey looking at the minor prophets. And every one of these books has revealed things that I wasn't expecting to see. Uh, and I've read these many times, but when you study them, you just see things that, uh, that just stand out. Joel is an incredible book of prophecy because Joel seems to be the first of the prophetic books uh, that are written. And certainly we have people like Samuel and so on and others who uh, uttered prophetic things. But when we look, look at the books of prophecy in the Bible, Joel seems to be the earliest. And Joel is incredible because Joel gives us this outline, this really broad picture of the whole future of Israel uh, and introduces us to this idea of the day of the Lord, uh, this time that is coming that God will bring his judgment upon this unbelieving and Messiah-rejecting world. And then all of the other prophets uh, kind of fill in details and bits and, uh, and information uh, that Joel just gives us the great framework for. When we come to Zechariah, uh, written round about 518 BC, in fact, I say roundabout, we know it was written in 518 BC, because uh, we're given the precise detail in the opening statement of the book. Uh, it was in the second year of King Darius, the Persian king. And this book tends to uh, focus once again on Israel, on God's plan for them as a people. And God always gives us those words of comfort right at the, the moments when we need them. You know, you may have been at a time in your life when things seemed challenging. And God suddenly speaks a word of comfort at that moment. You know, we'd have liked maybe God to have spoken it just a touch before that point. But sometimes God gets us right to those moments. And the nation had gone away to captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And they come back and they're in the land for 19 years. Nothing's happening. The temple's not being rebuilt. Haggai steps onto the scene and challenges the people to rebuild the temple, which is exactly what they do. And then a couple of months later, Zechariah steps onto the scene and challenges the people in regard to their heart. Now, we just look at this period of history. Once again, we've got the historical books that fit in this post-exile period, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They deal with the historical content of what happened when the people returned from Babylon. And then, of course, we have the book of Esther that we're familiar with, which was just a short time after that. Uh, also, the events, historical events at that time. And the three prophetic books that we have, Haggai, we've just mentioned, Zechariah, we're studying, and then Malachi, which we'll go on and we'll conclude the Old Testament with uh, in a few weeks, however long it takes us to get there. And of course, during this time, we've got all these various kings. There was the Babylonian kings, followed by the Persian kings, and then the Greeks with Alexander and so on. Uh, and, and, you know, all those world empires came and they went, but God's plan stayed on track. God's plan to do what he was doing with his people never changed. Again, um, I should have changed that note because when we were studying, we realized that Zechariah was actually more likely than not born back in the land. He was around about 17 years old as, uh, as he's writing this first portion of the book that we're studying at the moment. Well, they've been back in 19 years. So if he was 17 and now they've been back 19 years, it means that he was born somewhere around about two years after arriving back in the land, which is significant because it means he's part of a new generation. 
standing up and speaking for God in the midst of a, a people that were really kind of given over to apathy. Again, we've said already, he was contemporary of Haggai, but also Zerubbabel, who was the governor. Strictly speaking, Zerubbabel could have sat on the throne as king. He was part of the royal line, but he doesn't. Why? Because God had decreed that Israel would go for many days without a king. And the, the crowns we said before, the crown goes to Babylon with Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, of Israel. And the crown stays effectively in Babylon until some magi bring it back metaphorically and they search for the one who has been born king of the Jews. And that crown is then brought back. And Jesus, of course, is the rightful king. Joshua, this high priest that we've already seen uh, in the prophecy so far, a real person, he was part of the, the Levitical line that had come down. He was indeed uh, rightfully the high priest. And we'll see more references to him as we go on. But clearly a type of Jesus. Also Yeshua or Yehoshua, the Hebrew name. Uh, we have the Greek, which is Jesus. But in the Hebrew, it's Joshua. It means the Lord saves. Zechariah himself was a Levite and a prophet. Again, Haggai had preached some four sermons in four months and then disappears off the scene. Uh, and it's two months after that that Zechariah begins his prophetic ministry, which spans a long period of time. He starts when he's young, and these are the, the bits we're looking at at the moment. But he carries on into his latter life. And the, the latter part of the book are prophecies that seemingly come to him, the Lord gives him uh, toward the end of his life. Haggai, as we said already, encourages people to physically rebuild, whereas Zechariah encourages the people to spiritually rebuild. And Zechariah gives us some of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible and the things we'll look at. And they span history from that time, okay, so from the return from Babylon to the first advent of the Messiah and then to the second coming of the Messiah. And it's interesting that as we look at this, with the benefit of hindsight, we can clearly see that Zechariah speaks of the first coming of Jesus, but also distinctly of the second coming. Of course, for the Jews, they are still awaiting their Messiah. They've not understood, they've not seen that Jesus, their Messiah, has already been once. They're still waiting for the, what they think is the first coming of the Messiah. Of course, as Isaiah 53 tells us, the Messiah had to come first to suffer, to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the second time he'll come as the King of Kings. That's why with the Christmas account, so many people just get lost in the tradition of it all, but that's why we have shepherds arriving first, followed some two years later by the Magi. First, Jesus has to come as the Lamb of God. Then he comes as the King of Kings. Shepherds, the Lamb, the Magi, the King. There's not just random choices. All these details in the Bible are there by design. And Zechariah gives us a powerful summary of many of the details that are in between these things. Now, there's a lot of messianic references through this book. I won't go through all of these now, um, but the branch, that top one you can see on that list there, is a, a, a reference we see a number of times. And Zechariah uses his expression. Uh, the Hebrew is semek. It's, a, it's, a, it's something growing out of the ground. Uh, this is branch, uh, speaking of Jesus the Messiah. And many other references to the Messiah that Zechariah gives us. It's a very messianic book in that sense. Fourteen chapters, we've said this already. Uh, he's quoted 
or alluded to 71 times in the New Testament. That's incredible. Considering we've just got 14 chapters here tucked away toward the back of the Old Testament, Zechariah is quoted 71 times in the New Testament. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you that all those people that tell you they're a New Testament Christian are kind of missing something. Because the New Testament is made up of the Old Testament. You can't have the New Testament without the Old Testament. Zechariah also was a member of the great synagogue. Excuse me. This is a council that was apparently originated by Nehemiah and composed of about 120 members. It is later succeeds to the Sanhedrin, this group of 70, overseeing the nation. I'm not going to go through all of this, but just for uh, the sake of the notes, it will be on the slides if you want to look at these online again. Um, but what we have seen is this: after this introduction, then we have these eight visions, or some count it as ten, kind of irrelevant, the number, as to however you want to break it down. But these visions that Zechariah seems to receive in one evening. And we've gone through, we've looked at these already, very brief overview. The first one, we see this man riding on a red horse, and it seems to be the Messiah. And then these four horns or four craftsmen. Uh, and what we see is that these emissaries, these angelic beings, are sent around the earth to look at what's going on. And the report they bring back is that the world is casually sleeping, that it's resting, but not in a good way. And the idea is, of course, that the world is indifferent to the things of God, and particularly in regard to God's plan and purpose with Israel. I mean, could there be anything more true than we see in the world today the, the church, even, is largely ignorant of what the, what the Lord is doing in and through the nation of Israel. Most Bible seminaries, sorry, seminaries, I get confused with those two. Um, most Bible seminaries end up teaching all sorts of ideas about uh, God's or, or what Israel are there for. And, but they all have this general idea that God has now replaced Israel with the church. Nonsense. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. In fact, to the contrary, you find repeatedly God speaking of his plan, his purpose for Israel. The promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise he made to David, that one of David's descendants was set on the throne forever. That David's throne would be established forever. And clearly, this whole series of prophecies are all about God restoring Israel, as we've seen already stated in the, the opening vision that God will again choose Jerusalem. That yes, Israel had been disciplined, as it were. They'd had this time in Babylon. And even after that, there'd be a time where they would be dispersed among the nations, just as Moses prophesied. But Moses makes it really clear that they will come back again. I'm going to go off track already, which is worrying, isn't it? Cause it's... But let's just turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Because it's so, so clear And if anybody ever challenges you as to God's plan and purpose for Israel, in Deuteronomy 28, the whole chapter is speaking of the blessings and the curses that will come upon the nation of Israel. The first, well, from verse 2 to verse 14, God lists the blessings if Israel obey. Okay? And verse 14 just says, And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I have commanded thee this day, to the right hand or to the left, or go after other gods to serve them. That's the statement at the end of the blessings, if Israel obey. But then it goes on from verse 15 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 68, detailing the things that will come upon the nation for their disobedience. And it reads like a history of the nation. 
Because it starts and talks about the fact that others would come and take their food away. Uh, it says, verse 33 um, speaks... Um, of the fact that uh, the fruit of thy land and all thy labor shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up. Well, that's exactly what happened during the time of Gideon. The Midianites were coming and taking the food away. And it builds and it builds. And then verse 36, uh, it really kind of moves on to the time when they went to Babylon. The Lord shall bring thee and thy king which thou shalt set over thee unto a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have known. And they were taken away to another kingdom. And they were ruled by another power. And then it goes on to really the time of uh, well, verse uh, 52 of Deuteronomy 28. Really, it speaks of the siege. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates until thy high and fence walls come down. Well, that's exactly what happened with the Babylonians, with Nebuchadnezzar. But then he goes on to really speak about the time that the Romans then came and destroyed them. Verse 58, if thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, and it goes on, verse 59, then the Lord, it speaks of what the Lord will do, what he'll allow to come upon them. I'm just going to pick up verse 64. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth even unto the other. That's not speaking of the Assyrian or the Babylonian captivity. They were local captivities in a sense. They were to Assyria. They were to Babylon. And some of them returned to the land from that point. This is speaking of a global scattering of the people of Israel. And we're told that they're going to serve and worship gods that their fathers had known. And verse 65 goes on, And among these nations thou shalt find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. But the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart and failing of eyes and sorrow of mind. And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee. Doesn't this sound a little bit like the Holocaust? But let's read on. And thou shalt fear day and night, and thou shalt have none assurance of thy life. And in the morning thou shalt say, would God it were even. And at even thou shalt say, would God it were morning. For the fear of thine heart wherewith thou shalt fear, and for thy sight of thine eyes which thou shalt see. It's an incredible prophetic chapter that speaks of exactly what history has now shown us. So yes, Israel were scattered around the world because of their disobedience. But it's the same portion of Scripture, verse chapter 29, goes on and speaks of a stranger who would come, who would look at the land and be amazed at its desolation, that it wasn't bearing, that the whole land had become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And we saw in the third vision, the man with the measuring line, that in 1867, we have a man that year, who turns up in Jerusalem, Mark Twain, who documented and logged this stranger that came from a faraway place, just as verse 22 of Deuteronomy 29 says, and documented exactly as it says in those verses. And in the same year, Charles Warren, in fact, not just the same year, but the same time, in fact, they stayed in the same house in Jerusalem at the same time. And Charles Warren comes and he measures out the land and rediscovers the old city. Everything precisely as God had foreordained. And it begins this process of the land being returned to the people. Because also in 1867, the same year. In fact, within a week of that, 
the Ottoman land code was enacted, which allowed foreign nations and foreign individuals to buy up part of what was the old Ottoman Empire because they'd amassed this huge debt as a result of the Crimean War. And they needed to, to replenish the coffers. And so they allow initially people to buy the land. The Jews weren't allowed, but because they hadn't done the job, by the time we get to 1867, they open up and Jews are allowed to start buying up the land again. So we see a transference of the land back to the people of Israel. And then go to chapter 30, and this is the bit that I'm heading for. And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee. You see, God writes this, or Abraham, uh, Moses is recording this, but as God is speaking through him, he says, this is going to happen. He says, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee, and thou hast called them to mind among all the nations where the Lord thy God has driven thee. So Moses Prophetically declaring, there's going to come a point that once you have been scattered, all this will happen. You will disobey God. You'll be scattered around the world. But verse 2, And shall return unto the Lord thy God, and shall obey his voice according to all thy command thee this day. And thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that then. Okay, so there's a when. When this happens, then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity. And there's so much more to this uh, picture that we could paint with people like um, Theodore Heisel and, and so many others that were instrumental in the beginning of the movement we became known as Zionism. But this move of the Jewish people to return and want to move back to the land of Israel, all happening at the same time. So many incredible historical overlaps. And notice again that the Lord says, and will return. Okay, notice this, that the Lord, then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee. The Lord himself will return. Well, isn't that what we've just been saying about the second coming of Jesus? Because if he's going to return, he must have been once already. And the Lord will return, and we know that it's at the second coming that finally all the Jews that haven't yet been brought back to the land will be brought back to the land. Incredible prophetic scriptures. And then we've seen the fourth vision here, this idea of Joshua the high priest, the crowning of Joshua. And that's an unusual situation in and of itself. We'll talk a little bit more this morning because that will come up again. And then this golden lampstand, the two olive trees. We saw an incredible link to Revelation 11 that speaks of these two witnesses that are yet to come. And that will witness to the whole world. And this flying scroll that leads on to this woman in the basket, seemingly this false religious system full of iniquity, removed back to where it began in Babylon. And it's just a case of historical record that... Almost all religions in the world have their root in ancient Babylon. And those things got passed down and twisted and amended and so on. And have found their ways into almost every single religious system and practice in the world. And God says, ultimately, this false religious system will be judged. But it will return to its own base in Babylon. And then we come on to what we're going to look at in a moment, the four chariots. And then, again, just for the sake of the um, 
for the record, I'll leave the notes in there of what's coming in the, the remaining chapters of the book. We'll obviously get on to those in subsequent weeks. So let's jump into chapter 6 then and look at this incredible vision. This is seemingly kind of the last vision now that Zechariah has in this incredible evening. You know, we, we sometimes have nights where we don't get a lot of sleep and we wake up in the morning and I, I'm sure the, the, the morning came and Zechariah woke, woke up and was like, wow, what, what did I just see? So verse 1 says, And I turned and lifted up my eyes. Now, previously, he kind of whether he fell asleep again partway through this and the Lord awoken him, or whether it was referring, as you said, maybe to just greater enlightenment, understanding of these things. But now, seemingly in his vision, he's wide awake. He says, and I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. In the first chariot, red horses. In the second chariot, black horses. In the third chariot, white horses. In the fourth chariot, grizzled and bay horses. Now we're going to come and speak about the horses in a moment, but I want to just look at, to start with, the idea of the mountains here. These two mountains. Now some commentators suggest that this is a reference to Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives. And it could be. I think there's some challenges with, with that idea. Firstly, the text doesn't say that. One commentator just said that yeah, it is the valley between them set forth as the theater of divine judgment. And a lot of commentators, Eusebius, one of the early Christian writers, Jerome in about the 4th century, identify the valley of Jehoshaphat as this area between, the Mount, between Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives. And the name Jehoshaphat means Jehovah Judges. Now, that is an expression, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, that we'll see. We'll talk about it later in our study of Zechariah. I don't believe it's here. I don't believe geographically it's here. I think it's the Jezreel Valley, and there will be reasons we'll explain for that, which is further up in, in Israel. But certainly there is a valley that, that exists between Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives. If you remember, Jesus came down the Mount of Olives, Effectively across this valley and then up into Jerusalem as he's riding in on Palm Sunday. Today it's known as the Kidron Valley. It's the valley that David escaped across when he was fleeing from Absalom. It's the same place again, as I say, that Jesus crossed over. Even on the night that he was betrayed with Judas, this multitude came back with Judas to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is somewhere down the bottom of that valley. But I think there's something more to it than this. You see, in Scripture, consistently... Mountains represent kingdoms. And there's many examples we could give to cite that. And I just wonder whether what we're seeing here, the idea, because of what's going to come, is two opposing kingdoms. I mean, clearly from the text, we've got these two mountains almost set against each other. And it just reminded me of that account when the Israelites stood opposing the Philistines. Just in First Samuel, read this. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Ezek and Ephes domain. And I'm mispronouncing these terribly, but you can go mispronounce them at home later if you want to. But verse 2 goes on. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. Verse 3 says, the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. Very similar kind of idea to what we're reading in Zechariah. That is the, the valley of Elah. 
So in this situation that's recorded in Samuel, you had the Philistines over one side and Israel encamped over the other side. So I just wonder whether this is the picture that's being painted for us here. Again, we're told that these are two mountains and the mountains were mountains of brass. Now, literally, mountains generally are not all made of brass. Of course, you find all sorts of raw materials and metals in mountains, no doubt. But brass is idiomatic of judgment because brass is a metal that can hold heat, which is why it was used to make things like the brazen altar and so on. And, you know, there's various things that uh, uh, kind of put together here. So we have tin and we have bronze and so on. Um, but the idea is that there's, it speaks, seems to be implying judgment. And most commentators seem to be of the same mind in that. And, and whether people think this is the Mount Zion and Mount of Olives or whether it's idiomatic of kind of two opposing kingdoms. But I think that what we're seeing here is the witnessing of the climatic showdown on earth ushering in the millennial reign of Christ. We've got these two kingdoms. What are the two kingdoms? We've got God's kingdom. We've got Satan's kingdom. We've got all that Satan has done from the beginning of creation, effectively, from the Garden of Eden. Trying to turn mankind against God. And then we've got God's kingdom. We've got the coming kingdom, the kingdom that we're told to pray for. Thy kingdom come. And it almost seems to me, as I read this, that we've got these two kingdoms standing side by side, or standing opposing each other, getting ready for this coming conflict. So then we now go on and we'll look at these chariots. In the first chariot were red horses. In the second chariot, black horses. The third chariot, white horses. In the fourth chariot, grizzled and bay horses. David Guzik makes this comment. He says, the horsemen of Zechariah 1 were observers on reconnaissance. Now, in Zechariah 1, we saw horsemen there. But what David Guzik is saying is that these seem to be very different in their nature and what they're called to do. But he says, these four chariots and their horsemen seem to be hostile agents of God's judgment, emissaries of his war against the earth. And we'll see this played out. Now, I'm sure some of you already made a connection because we see four horses somewhere else in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, often referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter 6. And there's much written about these, and there's all sorts of mythology and things that have sprung up around it. But I just thought it would be helpful just to have a quick look at these four horsemen and then come back and look at Zechariah's four horsemen, and you'll see some connections. I'm not saying necessarily it's the same thing, but there are definitely some links between them. Now, in the book of Revelation in chapter 6, we get the beginning of this time of tribulation. Just to try and make it clear and lay it out for you, what we find from Scripture is that the church at some point between now and then will be raptured. Believers will be taken back to the place that God has prepared for us. John 14, 1 to 3 tell us that. First Thessalonians chapter 4. That Jesus will come again to receive us to himself. Jesus made it very clear that we are not appointed to wrath. And Jesus said to the disciples, we should pray to escape the things that are coming on the earth. Well, this will then lead into sometime after the church is raptured, a period of seven years. Now, it's detailed in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, a seven-year period. And the Bible clearly divides this seven-year period into two periods of three and a half years. This isn't allegorical. It's not some kind of picture language. 
is very clearly defined. We're even given the number of days, 1,260 days each section, three and a half years. 42 months for three and a half years. Okay, so there's no, no way. In fact, three different ways this period of time is identified for us. The first part of this time that's coming, we often refer to as the beginning of sorrows. It's a word or expression that Jesus himself uses in Matthew 24. And also Jesus uses the expression great tribulation, which is a, an expression that's given to the last period. And they're, they're fitting titles because the first period of three and a half years, we see God pour out his judgment on the earth. But it's in measure. There's, we find a third of the trees uh, destroyed or hurt, a third of the waters and so on. There's, there's always a measure. When we get to this last part, God pours out the full force of his wrath. Why? Well, seemingly because he's giving opportunity to people to repent during this time. The church is already gone. But people will still have the opportunity to put their faith and trust in Jesus and be called out of this time. Now, in Revelation chapter 6, the first thing we're introduced to is seven seals. I'll talk about that in a moment because it's pertinent to what we're studying this morning. That's followed by six trumpets and then a seventh trumpet. So there's all these sevens all the way through Revelation. That's followed by seven thunders, which John is told don't even record what they do. It's censored. We're not allowed to hear that. We're not allowed to see that because maybe we just wouldn't believe it or it would be just too much. But that's coming. And that will be followed by these seven vials or bold judgments. These two witnesses that we were looking at last week, these two olive trees that are called to testify and witness, witness during that first three-and-a-half-year period. Then they are killed. Antichrist has them put to death. But they rise from the dead, and they're caught up to heaven, or raptured, if you will. 144,000 Jews in Revelation 7, seemingly during this time, are called to preach and witness to the earth. Well, why? Well, the church is gone. The witness of the church is gone. And the Lord will then call these Jews to witness during that period of time, that first three and a half years. They also are called up to the throne. They're raptured also. And then we have these tribulation martyrs, people who will put their faith and trust in Jesus. During this time, they'll realize that everything that you've been telling your non-Christian friends, and they go, oh, that's nonsense. Suddenly they go, well, maybe it's true. And at some point into the last three and a half years, there'll be a cutoff. There'll be a cut off, and the last of these believers, these Gentile believers predominantly, will be saved, and they will be also caught up to the throne. They'll be raptured. They'll be taken out. Some of them will be martyred, and they'll die that way. Others will be caught up before the throne. And then these seven vials, let me go back one. Then these seven vials, uh, these bold judgments are poured out, and they are without limit in terms of uh, God's wrath finally being poured out. Why? Well, because there will be nobody saved from that point. God cannot pour out his wrath all the time as any, in full measure, all the time as any believers here. But when all of the people who will put their faith and trust in Jesus are called out, then we begin this last period. Interestingly enough, it's exactly this time if you look at it chronologically, that Israel will have fled into the wilderness from about the three-and-a-half-year point. Israel will have fled from their land. They'll be hiding in the wilderness. And it's while they are there that they put their faith and trust in Jesus. What is it that Paul says? Well, he speaks about the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled 
and then Israel being saved. When God has called in the last of the Gentiles, Israel's eyes will be open again. No coincidence, it happens at the same time. These things, these judgments all go one into another into another, sequentially. Let's go into Revelation chapter 16, giving a kind of a brief overview there. And I saw when the Lamb, by the way, that title Lamb is used of Jesus 25 times in the book of Revelation. It's the most commonly used title in the book of Jesus. And when the Lamb opened one of the seals, now this is interesting in itself, because these seals are on this document. It's a document that we're told is written on both sides. That means it's a legal document. Legal documents at that time would have writing on both sides of them. Normally with parchment, you'd only write on one side. But the the legal document would be written on both sides and then sealed with these seals. And it seems to be that the Lamb is holding the title deeds to the earth. Originally, title of the earth was given to Adam. Adam forfeited it. Satan stole it in a sense, tricked Adam out of it. And so Satan has become, according to Scripture, the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us that. Jesus, when he's speaking to Satan, that conversation in Luke 4, Matthew 4, and so on in the wilderness. And there's that challenge. And Satan says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus doesn't say, well, you can't do that. They're not yours. No, Jesus doesn't contest that because for now, the kingdoms of this world do belong to Satan. He's taken title of them. But from the point of the cross, just as we see this incredible model laid down in the book of Ruth, the land that was lost can be purchased back by a kinsman redeemer, somebody who's a member of the family. So what Adam lost is purchased back by Jesus. That was effectively done at the cross. For now, Jesus has left it. But when we get to Revelation and we get to the seven seal scroll, these seals are being peeled up, peeled off. And it's as if every seal is kind of Satan's losing his grip on the earth. And partway through Revelation, we get this incredible statement that the kingdoms of this earth have now become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Jesus will claim this earth back again. So, with greatest respect to all those that are very much into saving the planet. And yes, we have a responsibility to act responsibly toward the the planet and the earth. But we don't need to worry that much about it because seasons are going to continue. That's what we're told in the book of Genesis. We're not going to get to a point where there will not be seasons anymore and we'll have kind of, you know, uh, major problems with the climate. There's always been changes with the climate, always, through history. And there's a lot of people getting very much into these environmental causes and so on. But they lose sight of the reality that God is the creator. And Jesus is going to come back and he's going to establish his throne. And this earth will be just fine. That's not a mandate to go out and say, well, don't worry. That's simply a a reality check of saying, yeah, be careful. Look after the environment in which we live. But Jesus is still Lord. It's his earth. And he's going to claim title of the earth back again. Now John sees these seals being removed. And uh, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. So John's now watching this. And I saw and behold a white horse. This is the first of the horses in Revelation. And he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. 
Now, many confuse this rider on the white horse here with the rider that we see in Revelation 19. Now, in Revelation 19, it's very clearly Jesus Christ returning at the time of the second coming. It's King of kings, Lord of lords. There's no question in Revelation 19 who it is. This one seems to be somebody who is impersonating Christ, coming of Christ. Or the Greek term would be anti-Christ. This rider seems to be this character that we know is coming and 33 titles in the Old Testament and about uh, 13 or so titles in the New Testament, different names given to this individual, the man of sin and so on, the Assyrian, various titles given. We typically know him as Antichrist, this world ruler that's going to come on the scene. And this rider, we're told, comes to conquer. And notice he's got a bow. Notice that he's crowned. In other words, he receives authority. He's given authority by the people of the world. They're quite happy to accept his rule. And it may well be as a result of suddenly millions and millions of Christians around the world suddenly disappearing and the chaos that's going to cause. The world is going to need a strong leader to step forward and solve the problems. But interestingly, he has a bow. Now, most of us tend to think, and even most of the pictures you'll see, you think of a bow and an arrow. But there's no arrow mentioned here. Now, maybe it's implied, but there's no arrow mentioned. We're told he has a bow. But what is a bow? Well, we see another reference to a bow in the book of Genesis. In chapter 9, we read, and God said, This is a, the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. So the bow, clearly in Genesis 9, is the token of a covenant. And I would suggest it's exactly the same with this rider on the white horse that's coming, Antichrist. When he comes, he'll come with this bow. What a token of a covenant. And that's exactly what Daniel tells us in Daniel 9, verse 27. And he, this is speaking of Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week or a period of seven years specifically. When you dig into the, the details behind this. And part of what he's going to do in this verse tells us he's going to allow the Jews to start worshipping again. Their temple will be rebuilt. They'll be allowed to start offering their sacrifices again. On the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Something that even right now just seems just so far removed from where we are. You, you'll hear that on the news the conflict that, that exists on the Temple Mount. Jerusalem is such a a hotbed of so many problems. The Catholics want their piece of it. Islam wants their piece. Christians, even from the first century onwards and from the time of the Crusades, all kind of claimed, you know, it's not, it belongs to the Jews because God gave it to them. But Antichrist is going to come and make this agreement, this covenant with the many. Now, this is, the, this is Israel and the surrounding nations. For seven years. That'll be the beginning of this seven-year period. So Antichrist is going to come on a white horse, seemingly bringing peace. But halfway through this three and a half years, Antichrist is going to break the covenant. Israel will be forced to flee. It's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24. About those on the housetops and, and pray that you're not pregnant, pray that it's not on the Sabbath. Because then there's going to be great tribulation. So piecing this together, the first seal is opened, and we have this rider 
and a white horse with a bow, Antichrist coming. Then the second seal is opened, and we read, and when he opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see, and there was went out another horse that was red, and power was given unto him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Well, we need to kind of try and get into any deep exegesis of that. You can see exactly what's going to come. This red horse comes and world war will break out. Maybe even a few years ago, we'd have thought, well, I can't see that happening now. The world's kind of moved on. We've gone past that idea of kind of war. And all of a sudden, we see Russia invading Ukraine. And it's so fragile, isn't it, the situation? It wouldn't take an awful lot for the rest of the world to get pulled into this one way or another. The third seal... I'm not saying, by the way, that's it. I'm simply saying those are forerunners. Those are shadows of what's coming. The third seal is then open. We read, and when he opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see it. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hands. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Clearly what's coming is world famine. Even with this localized war in Ukraine, they're talking about world famine. They're talking about the problems that are going to be caused because of what Ukraine produces and that's not being sent around the world, the grain and so on, and fertilizer. Just that war alone is going to cause significant problems worldwide. Well, imagine a global war and the problems that are going to be caused and the famine that's going to result from that. You know, and, and the whole energy problem at the moment. And notice again the statement, see the hurt, not the oil and the wine. Interesting. We dig into these deeper some other time. But clearly then this black horse comes and it's going to result in world famine. It's going to follow on from this time of war. It's going to follow on from this false covenant that Antichrist signs. And then we get to the fourth seal and we read, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked and behold a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth. That's a quarter of the earth. It's to kill with a sword, with hunger, and with death, and with beasts of the earth. So a quarter of the population is going to die as this fourth beast rise out. This fourth horse, fourth horse rise out. If you do the maths, we're talking somewhere in the region of about 1.5 billion people. Can't imagine something on this scale. But this is what the Bible says is coming. I want to go back to Zechariah now. We're going to try and fill in some of these, these gaps. Then I answered and I said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Great question, Zechariah. And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits of the heavens which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. Now, we don't know a huge amount about this, but we can start to join the dots together from what we know of other scriptures. Firstly, you remind you of what we read at the beginning of the book of Job. Where is Satan seen? Well, he roams to and fro through the earth, but we see him standing before the Lord. So straight away, just because we see these spirits standing before the Lord doesn't necessarily mean they're good. Clearly, it would seem to imply that we have spiritual powers or angelic beings here. If you want to turn with me, Ken, I'm just going to turn to Revelation chapter 7. 
Because it's interesting, we see this theme, this four. Now, I've already said that four always seems to be the number of the earth or it's related to the world in one way or another. You know, the four seasons, the four cardinal points of the compass and so on. But Revelation 7, verse 1 to 3, after these things, and I saw, this is John reading, or stated this, four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of heaven, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels. So another angel steps up and stops these four angels. He says, to whom, uh, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, hurt neither, sorry, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, until, remember I said earlier about the untils in the Bible? There's another one until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And he goes on to speak about the 144,000 who are supernaturally protected during this time. But the point is you see these four spirits or these four angelic beings with a malevolent task ahead of them. Revelation 9, we see again the same thing. Verse 14 and 15, and we read this saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates, and the four angels were loosed which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of mankind. And it goes on. My point is you see these four spiritual powers recurring throughout Scripture, seemingly doing that which God would have them do. But they don't seem to be good angels. So my question is, can deceiving spirits go forth from heaven? Can God use fallen angels to fulfill his tasks? Well, yeah, we have a great example of this. If we turn to 1 Kings chapter 22, we read this, picking up verse 19. And he said, Hear thou, therefore, the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left And the Lord said, who shall persuade Ahab, that's the king of Israel, the northern kingdom at that time, who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall or die at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner, and there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord, notice standing before the Lord, and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, wherewith? And he said, I will go forth and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets. And the Lord has spoken even concerning thee. Read the rest of First Kings 22 to get the full context of that. But you see the principle here that there are these malevolent spirits before the throne. And the Lord will use them to fulfill his purposes when he chooses. We know in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We read this, picking up verse 7, For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now let it or preventeth, that's the old King James, he who now prevents it will prevent, he who letteth will let, until he be taken out of the way. It's saying that there's a mystery of iniquity at work in the world right now. And it's referring to the Holy Spirit who is preventing it, who will continue to prevent it, holding it back until, there's another until, until he be taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of the way? How's that going to work? Well, it's quite obvious, really, because the Holy Spirit was given to the church forever. When the church is removed, the Holy Spirit will go with the church. Verse 8, And when that wicked shall be revealed, 
speaking of Antichrist, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivable witness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, notice God is going to do this. God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Also, we see that God will allow deception to go upon or to come upon those who reject the truth. Let's pick up again Zechariah chapter six, verse six. Now, the black horses which are therein go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them, and the grizzled go forth toward the south country, and the bay went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro. Through the earth, just as Satan wandered in the book of Job, notice. And he said, get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth. So they walked to and fro through the earth. Then he cried, or then cried he upon me and spoke unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. Okay, what does all this mean? Well, north typically was a direction of Israel's enemies. And it seems to be here that Israel's enemies, that God's enemies, have been quieted. The work of these four spirits going out and doing what they're doing seemingly has been, notice where we started with this, this idea of judgment between these two mountains, that God's judgment has been meted out. And what follows on from this point will be the crowning of Yehoshua, or Joshua, we'll see in a second. Now, when we look at the four chariots in Zechariah and the four horsemen in Revelation, are there parallels? Well, the red horses, we're not told what they do. The black horses go to the north, the white horses also to the north, and the pale horses to the south and then to and fro to the earth and so on. In Revelation, the white horse speaks of a false covenant, the red horse of war, the black horse of famine, and the pale horse speaking of death. There's not a direct correlation in terms of color or of order, but seemingly we have the same four spirits that sequentially being seen increasing the judgment in Revelation 6 are seen in Zechariah 6 as also bringing God's judgment. And truthfully, there's a lot that we don't understand about this prophecy, but clearly there are overlaps here. In both cases, we have these spirits that are involved in bringing judgment upon the earth, getting the earth ready, ultimately, for the crowning of the Messiah. Let's just run to the end of the chapter. It's not going to take very long. And we see now the crowning of Joshua, the high priest. And this, is, of course, is a foreshadowing of Messiah's reign. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Take of them of the captivity, those that have come back from Babylon, of Heldai, of Tobijah, and of Jediah, which are come from Babylon, and come thou the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Then take silver and gold. Silver, metal, often speaks of redemption. Gold, speaking of kings. And make crowns and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. Now, this is interesting because he's the high priest and he's being crowned. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. Now, this is the title of the Messiah. We've already mentioned this. 
And he shall grow up out of his place. It's the same word there, the same people with Semek, both the branch and grow up. So Zechariah is in this situation, sorry, Joshua is being crowned, but what is being spoken is clearly beyond just him. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory. He shall sit and rule upon his throne. This is way beyond just Joshua. Joshua was the high priest. He didn't sit and rule over the house of Israel. And he shall be a priest upon his throne. He's going to be a king and a priest. And the council of peace shall be between them both. And others joining together, the monarchy and the priesthood. And the crowns shall be to Helem and to Tobijah and to Jediah and to Hen, the son of Zephaniah, for a memorial in the temple of the Lord. And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. God is speaking of the restoration, not just of the temple, but of the kingdom, of the monarchy, of the priesthood, but joining it all together in a single person. What a wonderful picture of the Messiah. Now in... The Bible, we find very clearly that Israel, the royal line was of Judah. The priestly line was of Levi. In fact, when King Saul tried to intrude in the office of the priest, he actually lost his kingdom as a result of it. There were very strict rules regarding this. Only on four occasions do we see the office of the king and priest combined. In Genesis chapter 14 with Melchizedek, He was the priest of the Most High God, but he was also king of Salem or Jerusalem. And indebted to Bill Cooper's incredible study, he studied on the book of Genesis, where he uncovers the fact that Melchizedek was part of a succession of kings and priests that had ruled and reigned in Jerusalem for a period of a thousand years. Isn't that significant? It wasn't just some random thing. And there's a lot of people that talk about Israel come a-stealing or taking away the land when they moved into the, the promised land under Joshua. The land was already God's land. These pagan, idolatrous nations had moved into a land that wasn't theirs. All that happens is that Joshua comes and removes the usurpers from the land. And by the way, Joshua is an incredible model of the book of Revelation. In the book of Joshua, we have ten nations Three of them fall first and leave seven. In the book of Revelation, we have ten kings. Three of them fall, leaving seven. There are so many parallels between the book of Joshua and the book of Revelation. In the book of Joshua, you have this incredible battle with this character Adonai Zedek. This character sets him up as the Lord, his own title, the Lord of Righteousness. He's a false messiah, effectively. And of course, in Revelation, we have Antichrist. There's so many parallels between the two. Joshua is just a model of what we see in Revelation. But Melchizedek, part of this line of kings and priests in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Then in Exodus 19, verse 6, at Sinai, Israel, as a nation, were told that they would be a nation of kings and priests to him. Now, because of their disobedience, God separates that out. And we then have the royal line and the priestly line as separate. But here, in Zechariah 6, it's a reversing. We talked a little bit about the Jubilees in times past, in previous sessions. 
And what we see with the Jubilee is it's a restoring, it's a returning to what was, a re-establishing what had been. It's a reclaiming that which had been lost. And we see exactly that as a reversal. What had taken place just after Sinai because of Israel's disobedience with this separation of the monarchy and the priesthood, we see is Zechariah being brought back together again in the times yet ahead of us. And then, of course, in Hebrews, we see Yeshua, Jesus, the fulfillment of that. He is a king. He is a priest. He will sit on the throne of David. He is a high priest. And, of course, there is a fifth because the church are also told that we are to rule and reign with Christ, that we are a kingdom of priests, but we're also given this royal authority. Everything that was undone as a result of the fall is being repaired and put back as it should be. Everything that Israel had lost and forfeited because of their disobedience, that led to the Babylonian captivity, God is saying through Zechariah, everything will be restored. And we'll continue from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time and opportunity just to review your word. Lord, I pray you stir each and every one of our hearts that we would fall more in love with your word as we see that it gives us a complete picture. And Lord, we may not understand every detail, but Lord, we look forward to that time when you will explain these things to us. When you are ruling and reigning in Jerusalem, a monarch who will never step down from the throne, a monarch who will never pass away, a monarch who will always be just and right. We thank you, Lord, that we serve you even now. What a privilege it is to bow our knee before the King of Kings, before the rest of the world has been introduced to you. But Lord, we pray for a harvest of souls. We pray, Lord, that a multitude would be gathered in. They would realize that you are a high priest who bears with our weakness, who can sympathize, who is in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. You are a high priest and you are also a king. We thank you, Lord, for these things. May we grow in knowledge and grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.